O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Amen. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord, our God, stand firm forever. Amen? Today we're looking at this incredibly important topic of the Holy Spirit. Paul is asking the church in Galatia, ancient Galatia, where Celtic Christians lived in that Roman Empire colony. He was asking the question, did you start your Christian life with the Spirit and now are somehow trying to attain greater maturity through your own human will and effort? He's asking, how did you start the race? And he's asking, how are you going to continue the race and finish it? Because finishing is really everything. Finishing depends completely on regularly relying on the right resources that got you started in the first place. Some of you know how to start a project, but you're not quite sure how to finish it well. Sometimes I've had that feeling. Some of you have a great idea, but it rarely makes it to production. You ever experienced that? You start the race and you have a hard time finishing it. Maybe you've started the Christian life with fireworks, but now it feels like it's just barely a spark that's left. The question is, how will we run the race from this point? How will we finish the race? Well, I guess you could compare the Christian life like to falling in love or being married. That's a good illustration the Bible itself gives. And so there's something similar that I've experienced in my life with Christ as I did in my life with Shannon. who's in Michigan this week visiting her family, by the way. So I guess I could say more freely what I really wanted to say in this sermon. It's like falling in love. Jesus, we, we start off strong often. The chemistry's there. The feelings are there. You sense the Holy Spirit is present in a powerful way. But then, just like in romantic love between a man and a woman, the chemistry often settles down to a lower grade. A settled love, a Still a passionate love, but it's just not the same emotional response that you initially had. The giddiness is gone. And so if this week my wife felt that I wasn't showing her the same giddy love that I did 18 years ago when we first met, maybe she should give me a biochemistry book and say, read this and find out how love really works. Of course not. Love doesn't grow through laws and logic and learning. It's It's not like that. Or or imagine a ship charting its course out to sea and the wind is fully behind the sails, driving it along out to its destination. But on the return trip, imagine the sailors all climbing the mast and just blowing with their own breath into the dead, drooping sails. How far would they go with human effort? That's not how it works. The Bible says that 
Men of old wrote the scriptures prophetically as the Holy Spirit carried them along and drove them forward. It's the Holy Spirit that is poured out into our hearts who gives us a love for God. And Paul is saying, you think that if the Holy Spirit came in great power in your life, even with emotional response, that emotional response will keep it going or working harder or learning more doctrine or being more faithful in your attendance at church? Of course, all those things are important and they're part of the equation, but do you think you can continue this race without the Spirit's power working in you? Paul says the Christian life is not ultimately about human effort. If it was ever life at all, then it must begin and continue and go to the end by the Spirit of God's power from start to finish. And so Paul's giving a rebuke and a reminder to the church in Galatia. These are new Christians. They're not Jewish Christians, but they're being influenced by Jewish Christians who came from Peter and James in the church of Jerusalem, as we looked at last week. And remember, Paul gave Peter a very strong rebuke and said, Peter, you started with the grace of God, not because you were Jewish or because you were culturally this way or that. God saved you by the riches of Christ alone. Now, how are you going to ask the Galatian church to now act more Jewish if they want to be right with God? He says, no. I'll rebuke you for that attitude. And now he's, without missing a beat, rebuking the Galatians for falling into that same trap. You could call it the trap of human effort. You could call it the trap of cultural Christianity. You could call it the trap of religious rules and regulations. You could call it like the fiddler on the roof, tradition. You know, you could call it whatever you like, but this is not what the Christian life is about. When different cultures like the Jewish Christians and the Galatian Christians meet, there's friction. There's confusion. There's concern. You know, each group is concerned for the other. You know, we do it like this in our culture. And that's exactly how multi-ethnic, cross-cultural ministries and churches work. There's, there's friction. There's confusion. We're not always sure what's the best form of worship. How should we truly, faithfully continue and grow and mature as believers when there's so many different options? And I would just recommend that we start, continue and end with the Spirit of God, with the Spirit of God who teaches us love for each other, humility for one another, that we would... Continue to humbly apply the lessons that Paul teaches the Galatians today, all the way to the finish line. So Paul gives them a rebuke in the beginning, and he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Foolish Galatians, literally, he says, mindless Galatians, you've forgotten so quickly. You've ignored, you're becoming ignorant of the truth that I taught you so clearly when I preached Christ so clearly, and you saw Jesus publicly portrayed before you as crucified in my preaching, in my life, in my message. And now you're acting so mindlessly and misinformed. Who has bewitched you? You're not acting like yourself. You're acting like you're under some spell. Like you have to act this way culturally to be right with God. Like you can do it on your own power. It was common for Paul and other teachers, even Jesus, to give rebukes like this. And, and sometimes they're pretty harsh. I don't know if you want me to call you foolish, and bewitched, I don't think that would go over so well. I think, you know, maybe I could say something more gentle like, don't be foolish, or, you know, are you acting foolishly? I'll just ask you the question, kind of. But he says, you are foolish, you're bewitched. He calls curses down on people who don't get the gospel right in Galatians chapter 1. This is intense. And rabbis and teachers and writers in the ancient days had a little more leeway, a little more latitude for doing things like this, for more harsh rebukes, and people didn't get all upset about it. There, there wasn't quite the, the uh, understanding of tolerance as we have today. What I'm saying is, though there's a time and a place to be rebuked, especially if you're 
trying to live the Christian life on your own power rather than the power of God. A loving, holy rebuke is sometimes in order. And if you're not willing to give a rebuke or receive a rebuke, why? You think you have it all figured out? You think you've got it on your own power? Do you think that no one else ever needs correction? Are you too afraid or or too lazy to say, hey, I think we need to both learn more about trusting the Holy Spirit and not our own effort or imagination of what this is like? We should rebuke as gently as possible, but as sternly as necessary, humble from start to finish, lovingly always. Paul is loving these people by rebuking them. And he's giving them a reminder. He says, okay, here's your reminder. I preached Christ to you, crucified, publicly, on display. You saw him clearly, the love, the sacrifice, the power of his death and resurrection, his Holy Spirit poured out in your lives. And now you're, at the end of chapter 2, verse 21, you're nullifying the cross. You're acting like the cross didn't even matter because, oh, now you got this. Now you can do this with your religion or your tradition or your culture or your human effort, even keeping the law of God, thinking that that's how it works. No, he says, let me remind you. Verse 2. Here's a question. Did you receive the Spirit, A, by the works of the law, or B, by hearing by faith? You heard the gospel. You believed in it. How did the Holy Spirit come to you? Was it because you obeyed God more? You kept the Ten Commandments better? You got circumcised like the Jews told you to? How did the Holy Spirit come into your life? It was simply by believing. By seeing the power and wonders of God, the grace of Jesus, and opening your heart, and He came and gave you the gift of His own presence and His own power, His own Holy Spirit. So He continues in verse 3. You dear idiots, you know, you're acting so ignorant still. It's like you're trying to write a college paper without using the ABCs. How do you think you're going to actually live a more advanced and mature Christian life without the basics, without how you got this thing started in the first place? The grace of God, the Holy Spirit. Having begun by the Spirit, he says, in verse 3, are you now being perfected or completed or matured by the flesh, by your own human effort? There's no amount of human effort or willpower or education or financing that will get you to where you need to be. He says it's only the Spirit of God. He was your starting point, your beginning. It wasn't some technique, it wasn't some methodology, it wasn't some church growth strategy, it wasn't sociology or psychology that you learned. It wasn't reason or proof or evidence or apologetics that opened your heart and changed. God can use all those things. You should study, you should learn, you should grow. But it's at the heart, the Holy Spirit changing your heart, giving you life when you were dead. And if you didn't begin by human brain power or strength, then you certainly won't continue by relying on that to mature you. That's what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Listen to what he said and how similar it is to what he's saying here. He says, When I came to you, Corinthians, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You know when people die that we care about? We put flowers in their graves. We sometimes, here on the south side, put their faces on t-shirts and wear them around to remember them. We put memorials and memories on Facebook on their anniversary. And Paul is simply saying, this is a memorial. I refused to think about anything else but my Lord Jesus who died for me. But there's something different here. He also rose from the dead. 
I'm not just remembering that he died and he's crucified, but you receive power because Jesus is alive. And the crucified Jesus came into your lives, and that's what changed you. Not my preaching, not my wisdom, not my rhetoric. It was the spirit of the living Christ. He continues to say, it wasn't my speech or my message that were implausible words of wisdom. So he says, I'm not relying on human reason here, but it was a demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God, the resurrection power of Christ. And then Paul points them to three areas, and I've summarized them with the letter R, to remind them of how to rely on the resurrection power of Jesus through his Holy Spirit, to run the race and to finish the race well. The first R that Paul points out is regeneration. Now, you might say, I don't see that in Galatians chapter 3. That's okay. You know, when I went to seminary, they taught me fancy words that I could, like, apply to the text. And this is one that most of you have probably heard before, but regeneration simply means, of course, to be born again, to be made new again. You were dead and now you're alive. So regeneration is what happens in verse 3. Having begun by the Spirit. Oh, there's a lot in that phrase, begun by the Spirit. That means your life began when the Holy Spirit came into your life. You got new life. You began existing as a child of God. You began to live with purpose, with a destiny, when the Holy Spirit entered you. That's regeneration. This is when God first breathed life into you, just like he did with Adam in the Garden of Eden. He took the dirt, he gathered it together, and then he breathed life, and DNA grew out of the dirt. And then a man and a woman were born, and then they started flirting. I mean, this is God's power. This is the Holy Spirit at work. And he says, the same way you began as just a dirty sinner, and God breathed life and purpose and forgiveness into your life, and now you're his child, his son, his daughter. John chapter 3, Jesus says the Spirit of God is like the wind that blows. And actually, the Hebrew word for spirit is the word for wind or breath. He says the Spirit of God is like the wind. He blows where he will. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. But he comes and he breathes into your heart new life and you're born again or born from above. He gives you new life, regeneration, generated after the likeness of Christ. And some of us, when we think about the theme of regeneration, that seems simple. Okay, I start with the Spirit. But then we begin to think about the Holy Spirit sometimes in in our, our Christian lives as a more advanced topic. You know, like if you don't speak in tongues or see healings happening or if you can't do amazing supernatural things, you might think, well, the Holy Spirit must not be really working in my life or I have kind of like the boring version of what God does in other people's lives. And so you almost think that the Holy Spirit is like some advanced course. And you begin forgetting that if you began with the Spirit, you must continue in the Spirit. There's really no other way around it. The Holy Spirit is not some advanced level graduate course. He's the primary instructor of the basic elementary things, and he only continues to take you deeper in those elementary things. You never leave or get beyond the foundations. The Holy Spirit gives you birth. He's like your father. I mean, he is not God the Father, but he gives you birth like a father would, and then he teaches you how to speak. How to talk to God. He teaches you how to learn and study and understand the Word of God. He, he gives you your spiritual food and your very oxygen you breathe spiritually. He breathes life into you every day. And He loves you like every child needs from a father or a mother. Loves you so that you grow in relationship with God. 
This is the Holy Spirit. It's basic, it's profound, and you need Him every step of the way. The hallmarks of the Holy Spirit's work in your life could be described as the fruit of the Spirit, like we'll look at it in a few weeks from Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, and so on. And these very basic marks of the Christian are signs of our rebirth. When you're born again, you begin to love God. You begin to feel joy over God. You begin to experience the peace of God despite troubles and pain in your life. It's like, once again, the first romance between a man and a woman. When we first believe, we first love. It's, it's, it's our first love, as Revelation describes it. It's that first taste of how sweet God is. It's life born in us and love born in us. And, of course, chemically it's proven that after two years, the, the romance wears off between a man and a woman. And it simmers down to something more settled and rooted and, and faithful. Some of you who grew up in the 80s in America know all about that because you might remember Stevie B. What did Stevie B say about it? Spring love, come back to me. Remember that, Anitra? You don't remember Stevie B? Oh, my goodness. I thought at least I have Anitra on my side for that one. Anyway, forget that. That one flopped. Spring love, that first initial taste of how good and sweet the love is, and then it's, it's gone. Where does it go? Where did the emotion go? But then you find a deeper love, the settled love, a, a simmering love. It's still... It's still warm. It's still there. But now it will get you through the hard times. It will get you through the challenges that the initial love would never have lasted. It's what regeneration is all about. God creates love in our hearts. He creates life in us. And we continue to mature as we continue to love him deeper and deeper. There's the second R of the Holy Spirit working in us. And we need to rely on his redemptive power. The redemption that Jesus brings to us through his Holy Spirit. In verse 1, Paul says to the Galatians, Jesus was clearly portrayed to you as crucified. He's talking about his cross, his redemption on the cross. Verse 13, Paul goes on to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. See, the law of God is not a bad thing. It's a holy, good, and righteous thing. But when you break it, there's a curse upon your life. You're a lawbreaker. There's a penalty. And Jesus came to set you free from the penalty of the law, free from the curse of being under God's wrath, and the Holy Spirit is the one that gives you freedom, applying the work of the cross to you and to me, to the church. Redemption simply means freedom. It means to be set free from your sins, to be set free from death, and set free from the, the power of Satan. And so we experience freedom in the Holy Spirit when we see Christ clearly portrayed as crucified, when we see Christ breaking the power of sin over us, when we see Christ setting us free in his death and resurrection. It's what Psalm 119 says, verse 32. David says, God, I will run in the path of your commands because you've enlarged my heart. Or like the NIV says, you've set my heart free. Why does God set us free? Why does the Holy Spirit take the work of Jesus? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did he take the time to bleed and die for us? Why did he send his Holy Spirit into our lives? To give us freedom. But freedom for what? Freedom for ourselves. Freedom to do whatever we want. Freedom to say, oh, I can sin and God will forgive me. No, of course, he gave us freedom to do what God wants. Freedom to do God's will. That's what redemption accomplishes for the believer. To see Jesus crucified means, to believe in the cross means, to accept Christ means we receive the Holy Spirit. We receive the one who sets us free to follow God. Romans, verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ 
does not belong to Christ. If you have the Holy Spirit, it means you're a Christian. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, it means you don't belong to Jesus. You're not in Christ. You're not in a relationship with Him. If you think, well, I'm a Christian because I prayed a prayer, or this, but I don't experience the power of God in my life or the Holy Spirit in my life, I don't understand what this means, that He's guiding me and giving me love and joy and peace and patience, maybe you need to reevaluate, do you know Christ? Because you can't have Christ without His presence, without His Spirit. Romans 8, verse 9. If you're in Christ and you're Spirit-filled, He has sent His Helper to you, His Comforter, His Advocate, his counselor, his life giver, his freedom maker, Jesus sends the Spirit of God into his people and they experience his power. The Holy Spirit is the great gift of salvation. Jesus said, when you pray to the Father, ask for what you need. If a child prays to his father and says, please give me a loaf of bread or a fish, Jesus says the Father doesn't give him a snake or a stone. And he says, when you pray to your Father, He knows just what you need. He will give you His Holy Spirit. Now what better prayer, what better gift? He is His best gift. He is His greatest blessing. God gives us Himself. And when a prisoner is set free from, you know, a penitentiary downstate, like one of our brothers will be set free next year, uh, Taiwan, he's been writing us letters, and when he, when he comes back home, what should we expect for Taiwan? Should we expect him to continue to live in isolation or captivity? Should we expect him to continue to live in some uh, trap in the free world? Like, well, now that he's free from the bars of prison, maybe he should you know, become captive to addictions or spend time away from everyone. No, of course not. When someone is set free, they're reunited with their family. They enjoy the freedoms of life. They don't want to go back into captivity in any way. They want to get a job. They want to be... Um, gainfully employed and provide for themselves and their family. And the Christian life is no different. If we are set free, we're not set free from the prison of sin and death and darkness so that we might then turn to old sins again or new forms of captivity. Galatians teaches us that we are set free for freedom. We're set free so that we might know the power of God and have a relationship with Him and His church. God is with us through His Holy Spirit. He is applying freedom to us. And this would be a great place just to stop and say, if God's greatest gift is Himself, then we shouldn't think about the Holy Spirit like just the wind or some power, some um, impersonal force like Jehovah's Witnesses teach and other, other people believe. This is God with us. This is Emmanuel. Jesus came in the body of a man and then He sent His own presence down to earth when He left. That's the Holy Spirit. He is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. He's not an it. He's not a something. He is God with us. The deeper we go into the Spirit of God, the deeper we go into the redemption that Christ purchased for us. The deeper we go into the Spirit of God, the deeper we understand grace and the cross. Again, we're not graduating from basic Christian doctrine into some spiritual realm that only a few can attain. No, this is basic, life-giving truth. This is the presence of God in his people's lives. The third R. There's first regeneration of the Holy Spirit, then redemption, then there's the righteousness that he provides. The righteousness that he provides. Paul says to the church, how did you receive the Spirit? Was it by the works of the law, or was it by hearing through faith? It was, of course, when you believed and heard the gospel 
Through faith, you receive the Spirit. It wasn't by the works of the law. No, what is the works of the law? We looked at it last week. Let me just remind you. It's any way that you try to meet God's standard or find significance with God or with people by keeping God's law or some human cultural standard or if your boss says, hey, you need to show up again in lab or, or check in early tomorrow and leave late, work harder, produce more, the competition is fierce. When you see other people and you're, you're competing, you're working, you're sweating, you're anxious, you're nervous, you're stressed, you're probably working according to the law. Whatever that law is for you. It, Paul keeps it pretty generic here. I mean, I think initially it's the law of God that he's talking about, but cultural standards that the Jews were, were uh, forcing upon the Gentiles, circumcision, dietary laws, is that what really saves you, Paul says? Is that what makes you righteous? Of course not. The Spirit of God makes you righteous by applying Jesus' work to your account when you simply believe. That's all you have to do is receive the gift. Open your life to it. Verse 6 says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Before Abraham was even circumcised, before he even kept the law, he was counted righteous because he simply believed. And Paul says in verse 7, if we believe, guess what? Adoption becomes a reality for us. We become children of God, sons and daughters of Abraham. If we simply believe, you become a child of God. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. Faith alone in God's work, not your work. The works of the law could include getting better grades, getting more likes on Facebook, finding that right special someone, making the mark, measuring up, whatever it could be. You're trying so hard and God says, okay, let's just break it down again. If you want true significance, if you truly want to be right with God in his world, trust me, walk in my spirit. You can't be justified even by religious activities. Circumcision doesn't save you. Eating or not eating pork doesn't save you. Fasting from food doesn't save you. Praying or singing a certain way doesn't save you. I mean, think about the way that we worship and how we might subtly rely on different styles and preferences and think that this makes us more right with God. Some of us like to worship quietly. We fold our hands. We bow our heads. We put our hands in our pocket, maybe behind our back, because, you know, whatever reasons, we just want to be still and quiet in God's presence, maybe, respectful, reverent, those are all good things. That doesn't save you. That doesn't mean you're better than someone else. I mean, there's really nothing amazing about a mannequin challenge in church. It doesn't really mean that you're okay with God if you just stand still while we sing. But also, you're not justified by loud and lively worship, raising your hands, jumping up and down, running around. That doesn't save you either. It doesn't justify you before God. Now, I do think as a white man who grew up in a very straight, quiet church, that when I go back, I'm like, dang, man, they need to come visit in Chicago and see how we worship. And some of you come to Living Hope and you're like, wow, they're so quiet and restrained here. We have a spectrum. And as a white man, I've learned that there's a lesson here in that when our brothers and sisters who came to America on slave ships from Africa were in their church meetings, they started jumping around. They started shouting. They started dancing. And why? Why? You tell me. Why would people want to jout, uh, jump, shout, and sing to the Lord? Because they were set free. Now, isn't it ironic that the slaves were shouting and dancing and acting freer than the free people? I, I, just, I just thought, that's an interesting thought. It's kind of ironic that 
those who were slaves were the freest to express themselves with the most joy in the Holy Spirit. And I thought, maybe, maybe I could learn a lesson there. Maybe I could let the depths of God's grace change me a little bit more, open my heart to love Him and shout a little more loudly, sing a little more strongly. There's nothing wrong with singing quietly or loud. Neither one justifies you. But when the Spirit moves, hey, you know, I'm not going to stop you, okay? So there's nothing wrong with these things. Just be open to the Spirit, not bound to tradition, not bound to the way you've always done or what some culture has told you, a custom, a method, a formula. Let the Holy Spirit lead you. Okay, the three R's, regeneration, redemption, and righteousness that come from God's Spirit to His people. Let's just highlight a few ref, uh, resources really quick of how we can make sure that we're walking in the Spirit so that on the journey we get to finish what we started. That, to be precise, God finishes what He starts in us. What should you pack for the journey, essentially, is what I'm saying. And I'm, I've already told you, make sure that you always are walking in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so verses 4 and 5, Paul tells the Galatian church, he says, first, did you suffer so many things in vain? So first he talks about their pain or their problems or the persecution they experienced. And then he says in verse 5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And of course we know it's by faith. But there's two things he highlights. First, the pain of your life. And secondly, the miracles that God did among you. The word literally in Greek is wonders. He worked wonders or powers to be more precise. Powers. He worked powers among you. And specifically, this power gave you endurance to get through the problems and the pain and the persecution you experienced. It all came through the Holy Spirit. Now, I would imagine that you probably want more miracles in your life, more power, more wonders, and less pain, problems, and persecution. Is that a correct assumption? You want to see, because I've talked to some of you, even in the past few weeks, you want to see the Holy Spirit doing more miraculous things in your life, and you say, if I only saw more miracles, I would have stronger faith. Well, maybe, maybe not. But what does God promise? He doesn't promise always more miracles. He really doesn't. He does promise in Timothy, when Paul writes to young Timothy, he says, I do guarantee that in fact you will be persecuted, though I can promise you that. If you want to live a godly life in Christ, you will be persecuted. I can't say that the miracles will just always abound. You will see miracles. They will come. There will be power. You will see powers at work in your life. But let the power and let the miracles keep you faithful through the pain and through the problems and through the persecution that you will experience. Acts chapter 14 describes one of the miracles that Paul worked among the Galatians through God's power. There was a man crippled from birth. He had never, ever walked a day in his life. His legs were broken. They didn't work. And then he was listening to Paul preaching and Paul looking intently at the man I wish I had this kind of ability. Saw that he had faith to be made well. Now, I can see attentive expressions. I can see eager expressions. But I can't really see faith in your heart. But I, I wish I had that kind of skill to see faith. That people want to be made well. They want to say, yes, I want to change. I want to break through those addictions I'm experiencing. I want to stop sinning in these ways. I want to be bold and be a witness. I wish I could see that. In you, And maybe, maybe you'll tell me about it. Maybe you'll show me in more obvious ways that I can't tell. But Paul could see his heart and he said, this man wants to be made well. And so what does he do? In a loud voice, Paul says, stand upright on your feet. And the man 
sprang up and began walking. He had never walked a day in his life. How did he know how to walk? I don't know. I mean, when toddlers learn how to walk, they're like falling over the place. This man just sprang up and automatically he knew how to walk. The Holy Spirit did reconstructive surgery on his legs. In that moment, he was healed. But guess what? Immediately after the crowds tried to worship Paul and Barnabas for this great miracle, calling them the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes, then the Jews showed up, they were following Paul and Barnabas, and they began stoning Paul, and they dragged him out of the city as though dead. So much for the miracle. You know, it led immediately to persecution. See? But the power, the powers that God was giving his people led to faithfulness. Because Paul got right back up from almost dead, went back into the city, and the next day he got his stuff together, and he went and continued preaching in other cities where he would also be persecuted. Why did Paul keep going and preaching in all these cities despite the persecution, near-death experiences? Not so he would see crippled legs healed per se, so he could see crippled lives healed, so he could see regeneration happening in people's hearts. So he could see faith in people say, I believe that you want more of Jesus. I believe you want true life through the Holy Spirit. That's why he kept going, city after city, pain after pain, trouble beyond anything that most of us have ever experienced. You see, the lesson here is that you must rely on the Spirit of God to get through the pain. I'm not denying that you've got pain in your life. You've got sorrows, you've got depression, you've got obstacles. I'm not saying we're not going to have that. I'm saying we will. What I'm saying is you must push through the pain, but not by your human efforts, by the Spirit's power. I'd be lying to you if I told you that it's okay to give up now because I know it's too hard for you. It's not. It's not okay to give up. Is it really okay to tell God, okay, God, you brought me this far by, the, by faith and by the Spirit and by your power, but now I'm just too tired. I've got to give up. This is the perfect time to push forward and say, more of your power, God. I can't do it anymore. I can't take another step. Good. He doesn't want you to take another step in your own power. He wants you to call on his name and fall on your face and receive true power from above. The perfect time to receive more power is when you cannot take another step. You can never stop relying on God. Don't ever stop relying on God. Verse 5 says, He supplies the Spirit to you. Supplies is an amazing word. It just means He's continually giving you what you need. Like, like 2 Peter says, everything you need for life and godliness, it's yours. Anytime you ask, anytime you sincerely open your heart, He will pour into it love, joy, peace, power. You are supplied. You have resources. What must I take on the journey? Well, you've already got it. Just keep relying on His Spirit. You might actually miss some miracles if you're not relying on the Spirit of God. How might you miss miracles? How might you miss this present that is power for you and is available for you? Well, if you start focusing on the works of the law, that's one way to miss them. Focusing on human strength and flesh, like, I got this. I don't need the Holy Spirit. It was an interesting sermon, but I just need to go back and study. I need to go back and make more money. I need to go back and try harder. You'll miss many miracles. You'll cut yourself off from the power if you do that. Stop trying on your own human effort and constantly checking what the culture tells you to do or what the church tells you to do or what you want to do. This is what God wants for you and has for you. It's power. It's supplied freely in His Holy Spirit. Stop clinging to comfort, safety, making excuses. I'm going to be embarrassed if I sing too loud or I'm going to be embarrassed if I speak too clearly of Christ to my friends. 
Stop trusting in yourself and what you think might happen and rely on God and take a step of faith. It's a very, very, very stressful way to live to depend on yourself, to say, it all depends on me. I have to figure this out. That's a very stress-filled, anxious way to live. You might feel stressed because of what God tells you to do. He says, no. If you do what I tell you to do and trust in me, you'll be free. Stop trusting in yourself and thinking that you've got a better way. You know, when the Nazis put Jews and gypsies and homosexuals and others in concentration camps, they, they had a sign at the front of some of those camps, like in Auschwitz, and the sign said, work makes free. Work makes free. What a lie. You come in and work in our camp, oh, well, you know, you work hard enough, hey, we'll give you, you know, benefits included. I, that was a total lie. Of course you're not going to be free if you work in this camp. You're going to die in this camp working. Now, what if the, the Allied soldiers come and set the, the prisoners free from concentration camps, and they say, you're free to leave, and they wander out the gates, but then they say, work makes free, though. If I want to stay free, if I want to stay free, I'm going to have to go back and do some work. So I'm going to go back to the gates and polish the SS guard's boots so that I can remain free. Is that what they did? Of course not. But that's what you and I do when we're set free by the Spirit of God through the blood of Christ, and then we say, now I've got to go back and, and do some work to stay free. It's a lie. It's not how it works. It makes you more of a prisoner. It doesn't depend on you. It's grace from start to finish. I don't know about you, but I don't think I'll ever get over grace. By God's grace, I'll never get over grace. I'll never get over my need for the Spirit to keep me in the path of freedom and righteousness and new life that He's given me. How do we do these things? Just practically a couple tips as we close. Okay? One, I want you to pray in the Spirit at all times with prayers and supplications for all the saints. That's what Paul tells the Christians in Ephesus in chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians. Pray often and always talking to God, not just talking to people about your problems. That's one I need to hear. And listening to God, not just listening to people. At all times, in all places, with all sorts of prayers. This includes prayers that are spontaneous and prayers that are planned. And we have some planned prayers in my family where we say, okay, on Mondays we're going to pray for these people, on Tuesdays we're going to pray for missionaries, on Wednesdays we're going to pray for this issue, and we, we just do it regularly. If we didn't do it, we'd probably forget. There's other spontaneous prayers, like if you say, hey, um, you know, I've got a, a problem, often I'll just say right in the moment, let me pray for you right now. It's spontaneous. It's free. Pray it all different ways and all different occasions in the Spirit. Let Him lead you to planned prayer and let Him lead you to free and Flowing prayer. Just pray. 1 Kings chapter 19 gives us another reminder. Listen to God's still small voice through the scriptures, by the Spirit. And to do that, remember Elijah on the mountain in 1 Kings 19, he didn't hear God through the whirlwind or in the great fire, the breaking, smashing rocks. He heard God in the still small voice. So to me and you, I think this means turn off your devices. Especially when you're in church. We have people you can talk to and pray for you. Okay? I know some of you, even when we're praying or singing or having communion, you're looking at your phone. I know that. I see you doing it. Now, I know some of you are looking at Scripture. That's a good thing. Hopefully you're not looking at anything else. Turn your devices off regularly. Fast from them. And listen to the voice of God. Fast from studying for a day and actually take a Sabbath and say, okay, God, 
work in me. I know I'm supposed to be studying now. That's what the world tells me. But I know you told me to take a break and trust you. So help me to work hard six days a week and stop playing on social media so much so I'll actually have time to study. Yeah, I know how it works. I was a student once too. Grad school and everything. I know how it works. I, I struggle with this. But trust him and listen to his voice as you turn down the distractions of the world. You will hear his still small voice speaking to you through the Holy Spirit. Another way, Romans 8.13 says, By the Spirit put to death the misdeeds of the body, and you will live. That means you need to confess your sins. The Holy Spirit is a holy spirit. He is the holy spirit. He doesn't like sin. He's grieved by it. He hates it. When you say, Lord, come and give me freedom... Confess your sins. Freely confess them. Get those out of the way, right up front. He already knows that you're sinning. He already knows what you're thinking and what you're doing. Say, take those away from me. Give me freedom from those things so that I can truly walk in the resources you provided. Crucify your sins and let the risen Savior lead you into life. 1 Corinthians 2 gives us another uh, practical tip. 1 Corinthians 2, when Paul, we already read this, he says, when I was witnessing to the Christians in Corinth, my speech and wisdom and lofty language and reason and rhetoric was not what convinced them. I was relying on the Spirit and on God's power. So, go out and evangelize. Share your faith with people. But don't rely on whether you're smarter than them or whether you've studied up with apologetics or whether you have all the arguments and all the evidence marshaled in some airtight way. No, I mean, study, yes. Be educated. Learn the Bible. Of course. But then take a step of faith. Go out and pray, Lord, bless this conversation. Bless this lunch that I'm having with this person. Give me an opportunity. Open the door. Open their hearts like you did to mine. Another one, Philippians 2, verse 13, it is God who works in you to will and work according to his good pleasure, his good purpose. It's God who works in my work. It's God who works in my will. He wills for me to will a certain way. He works in me so that I can work a certain way. Whatever you do, what's your work this week that God has called you to do? What's your work? Allow God to work in your work. Learn the lesson of Isaiah 40. Learn to run and not grow weary. So learn to rest while you're running. Learn to be joyful in your work, even when it's hard work. Learn to enjoy it. Learn that this is God working through you. This is the Spirit's power giving you strength in your hands and in your mind to do whatever He's called you to do. And then finally, John 4, verse 23. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman who had like six husbands and one that is no longer her husband, but she's shacking up with him. He says, I've got something better for you. The water of life. And he says, he says this, A time is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth because these are the types of people the Father is seeking to worship him. A time is coming and it's here. I mean, it was here 2,000 years ago when Jesus stepped onto the earth. It's here when Jesus, through the Spirit, is the Father's agent on the earth and he's seeking you and me to worship him in spirit and in truth. This is the time. He's seeking you. Let him find you. Open yourself. Let him search you. Let him know you. Let him lead you. Be searchable. Be findable. Be usable. Be spirit-filled. A time is coming and has now come. What time is better than right now? To be filled with the Holy Spirit and to say, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. You're welcome here. Let's stand as we sing.
as we take communion together, as we continue to worship and live lives worthy of the calling.